The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, and 24-7 support. Go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code GUARDIAN to get 20% off throughout the month of September. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On today's programme, Sir David Attenborough talks to us about his new TV show, BBC Payoffs, and the changing nature of, well, filming nature. Plus, we ask what Culture Secretary Maria Miller's call for a bigger brief for the NAO means for the BBC. Is it TTFN to the corporation's independence? That's um, ta-ta for now. And Rebecca Nicholson is here to review a big week for Walter White and an even bigger one for Hank in Breaking Bad. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. This week, I'm joined by writer and broadcaster Sam Delaney and by the managing director of content company Something Else, Mr. Steve Ackerman. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. How you been doing? Busy weeks, chaps? Both in grey, I know. Yes. That doesn't mean anything necessarily, but... No, I'm not trying to express anything regarding my week's schedule via the medium of grey. Uh, but, you know, reasonably busy. That'll do. I'll settle for that. Um, yeah, I'm working at the BBC at the moment. Ooh. The beleaguered BBC. Talksport man joins BBC or...? or... Oh, no, I always... Um, I'm very promiscuous. I work for them both. Stephen, you're all you're very promiscuous. Oh, I'm very else. promiscuous. Yeah, you'll take all comments. Don't tell my wife, but yeah. <laughs> Any particular program your company's been working on this week you can share with us? Are you gardening welding at the minute, or is We're that off gardening air? welding? We're in production with some stuff for Channel Four, so that's quite exciting as well. The, give us a hint. What is it? Go on, give us a hint. I, I'm not. I'm. I'm not going to give you a hint because I, I think I've already said too too much. But uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, I'll wait. I'll look at the credits uh, of every Channel Four show until I see something else. Then I know what you're talking about. Right. Move on. Coming up, we have, uh, in part two, we hear from David Attenborough. But before that, we tackle life on Media Earth. Yeah? Thanks, chaps. Uh, it was Margaret Hodge versus the BBC last week, or at least that's what it felt like. It was sort of billed as uh, sort of Lord Patton versus Mark Thompson, but really it turned into everyone else versus the BBC. And they raked over lots of old ground about exactly who knew what about those big payoffs. And uh, But what we did learn from Culture Secretary Maria Miller at Cambridge last week is that she wants to give a bigger role to the National Audit Office. And it wants to, uh, well, basically she wants to give it the, um, the capacity to investigate what it wants at the BBC. Um, chaps, first off, what were your thoughts about last week's committee meeting and maybe more up to date? What did you think about uh, Maria Miller's speech at Cambridge and, and what she said about the NAO and the BBC? I think the interesting thing about the committee meeting is the way Margaret Hodge is really now forming a reputation. I mean, it's almost like one of those American Senate committees that that, that, that seem to have sort of huge powers and, and get involved in lots of different issues. And, and I, I can't think of many parliamentarians over the past 10 years um, who are not in the cabinet and yet who are, who are forging such a reputation as, as she has done over obviously this issue and, and um, uh, um, you know, banking and, and sort of other financial related issues. Clearly, the BBC didn't come brilliantly out of it. Um, I think she summed it up perfectly in that everyone's a supporter, or not everyone, but you know, she certainly said, I'm a supporter of the BBC, but this is a pretty unedifying spectacle. And Sam, it feels like this was kind of the last chapter, or, or you hesitate to say that, but uh, the last chapter in the big kind of payoff scandal, and maybe, you know, maybe now oh, eventually no, we're going to I'll hope that there's something else even more extravagant to be unearthed. Don't say that. 
Uh, I just think these committees, rather like the public inquiries, they're just for show-offs. Peter Preston wrote a great piece um, about how there was nothing remotely like a a trial where people were contemplating things in a rational way. It was basically a public kick-in for members of the BBC. It was something that was very easy for people to support and cheer about because there was huge sums of money being mentioned, all of them out of context as well, so you didn't really get a sense of the fact that, you know, within the industry it was actually, you know, reasonably low a lot of the salaries and payoffs and, and whatnot. And it was basically a big kind of uh, opportunity for people like Margaret Hodge, like Steve says, to kind of make a bigger name for themselves without having to climb the slippery role in the conventional manner uh, of politics. You know, it's a shortcut to kind of cultivating a reputation. Louise mentioned the same thing uh, by, by sitting on committee, um, you know, and became basically a celebrity by being very outspoken. There is very little difference between being a judge on a reality show and being a panellist, as I call them, on one of these committees that go on telly. Because Basically, the more aggressive you are, the more controversial you are, the more confrontational you are, uh, the more famous you become. And, you know, who knows what comes out of the committee in terms of anything relevant in terms of legislation or changes. Uh, You know, but certainly the individuals concerned use it very often to make a big name for themselves. But, you know, I found their their behaviour, their conduct unidentified and that of Margaret Hodge and her, you know, co-panellists, co-judges. Well, uh, Steve, who knew that Jesse J and Margaret Hodge had so much in common yeah, I, I don't think that's right, actually, Sam. I think, I, look, I mean, there is the public spectacle element. Of course there is. But uh, when you say what's been achieved, well, the very fact that it's been discussed and clearly some reform is going to come out of this. It's you, know, you know, the status quo. as much as, they're, they're like, you know, I saw the, the former, the, the head of HR, and they, they didn't really give her a, a word in edgeways. They just sort of had a big go at her, saying, why you give all this money to people? And, you know, it was sort of like, it reminded me of the beginning of The Godfather Part 2, where Michael Corleone is sat in front of all those angry men in that huge hearing sort of thing. Because it's so easy to say, well, you know, 500 grand here, 600 grand there. No one's going to really go, well, actually, we thought that was very reasonable. Because there's not really any yin and yang to these discussions, is there? It's just, it's, it's a bit like when people go, footballers, getting all that money. You know, why why do you get all that money, footballer? Because they offered it to me, and because that's the going market rate, you know. Well, I think uh, to talk about another reality show, uh, which is The Biggest Loser, is that a TV format? I've yeah, heard of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. That'll do, right. If it's not, it should be. Well, you'll see where I'm going. The biggest loser, it appeared, was uh, Lord Patton and the BBC Trust, uh, with lots of question marks about what it knew, what, what it didn't know. Uh, Maria Miller in Cambridge appeared to um, sort of put it on final warning, really, and say that you know the BBC had to get its act together without actually threatening to, to, to abolish it and without actually saying too much about what she was going to do. But uh, the sort of most substantial point she made was that the National Audit Office will get more freedom, essentially, to do what it likes, to investigate what it likes uh, in the BBC. And in response, James Purnell, the BBC's strategy director, suggested that this might threaten the BBC's independence. Steve, what did you make of what Maria Miller thought and what the BBC's immediate response was? Well, those two reactions are kind of the obvious reactions you would expect. Clearly, it's James Pennell's job to defend the BBC. He's never going to stand up and say, yes, I think that's a good idea. Equally with Maria Miller, we had Jeremy Hunt saying the same thing before the Conservatives even came into power. And actually, I thought the biggest thing about that was, I mean, this definitely chimes with Sam's previous comments. It just feels like a bit too much of an easy comment for Maria Miller, especially bearing in mind how anonymous she pretty much has been in her tenure uh, in this post. And Sam, this, this prompted surely the least likely uh, article ever in the Daily Mail, where uh, it came out in support of the BBC. 
uh, it said that no, the NAO shouldn't have any uh, greater powers to investigate the BBC because it might end up, you know, looking at editorial budgets or suggest that the voice isn't worth, you know, isn't value for money. The, the very <laughs> thought. But also, what really got the males get was this idea that um, regulation of the BBC could get at Ofcom. Which is the one body I think that the Mail is even less keen on it, it, than the BBC. It was full of terrible politically correct Blairites, is how it described it. Just like I the did, BBC. Yeah, it, it, it was. It, it, it was an absolutely amazingly written piece by the Mail. Uh, I can highly recommend it because it was. It was. It was beautifully written. It was quite spectacular, and it got really stuck into Chris Patton in in a way that I kind of I quite appreciated because it it said that he was. Um, I can't. They said he was flippantly offhand, and that is the problem with Chris Patton. You know, when he appears at these things, he's a tremendously self-confident kind of man who who carries himself, whether or not it's it, you know it's just an appearance or whether it is part of his personality, as very arrogant to the extent that he finds it all kind of laughable. People getting their knickers in a twist over these issues. Now, you know. Some of us might very well agree with him that it is, there is an exaggerated response to some of these issues. But, you know, it's part of his job to at least appear to take it seriously. And I thought they worded that quite well. I can't remember the exact word they used, but they kind of said that's what we object to, is that he, he kind of sits there kind of flippantly, you know, as if it's all like a bit of a laugh to him and his life's just going to move on regardless. Steve, fair, play to them. fair play to the mail, eh? No one ever stands up for them. Come on, well done, <laughs> Mail Online. They're, they're the ones who are really beleaguered, aren't they? The mail. They get nothing but strife from the likes of us. The poor mail yeah. online. Mm. Uh, Steve, what you, would it be the end of the world as we know it if Ofcom had a bigger role in regulating the BBC? And do you think it's ever going to happen? Big questions there, Steve. Well, the difficulty with it is what starts to unravel once w- once you do that, because clearly Ofcom wouldn't be responsible for governance of the BBC. And so you start to get back to the ground you used to have of, you know, do you need a, a sort of board of BBC governors or, you know, who exactly is sort of in charge of the day-to-day governance of the BBC? You know, because that wouldn't be Ofcom's role. And, and Ed Richards has said that, that, you know, that wouldn't be what, what Ofcom could do. It's got to be something worth looking at because, in a way, it was kind of the logical thing to look at, look at last time round when the BBC Trust was was uh, set up. But I think you've got to have well thought through answers on on what happens with all those other elements to make sure the complete picture is in place. Because clearly, what can't happen is that four or five years down the road. Uh, another solution is being sought yet again. I mean, let's bear in mind it's not that long ago that the BBC Trust was set up. Okay, well, moving on to other media news this week. Channel 4, uh, it's been revealed, is planning to invest millions of pounds in promising independent TV companies. David Abraham, speaking at the uh, Cambridge RTS convention, uh, said the idea was that they'll take minority stakes in companies with turnover of sort of one or two million pounds and then help them grow bigger to the scale of sort of nine or ten million pounds than they'd exit stage left. Steve, what did you make of this? Because there's some there's there are question marks about whether this is really part of Channel 4's remit and if it's the sort of thing it should be doing. And as you know, as a, a man who uh, is in charge of an independent production company, how would you feel if uh, you saw Channel 4, you know, taking minority stakes in some of your rivals, and how would it affect your? How would you perceive it affecting your chances of doing business with you know Channel 4 in the future? Well, my understanding is uh, from the public service um, perspective, they are okay to uh, to do this. I, th- I think I saw that uh, maybe it was Ofcom or, or someone had said yes. No, actually, they they are able to do this i mean it seems to me they're trying to do a similar thing to to some production companies such as predictable media sebastian scott's sort of umbrella holding company and an argonon where they're looking to put up a body of smaller not quite startup just 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 beyond that startup 
and help them grow. It's kind of the obvious thing to look at, isn't it? I mean, ITV have done it on a much bigger scale. Obviously, BBC World, Worldwide have done it. Clearly, questions are thrown up about competition that don't necessarily affect companies like like mine as much because we're not so heavily in the TV space. But you know, if I if I'm a, a young startup and I'm not funded by Channel Four, y- you've clearly got to think, well, isn't that going to give an advantage to company B who? who are funded for them but equally Channel 4 have got to look at some of these additional forms of revenue and also they've got to look at how they can get the creative ideas coming through because you know they've, they've had significant problems in the past few years in terms of making sure there's a clear identity post Big Big Brother maybe they feel this is the latest thing I mean the other thing is all these things come, come around in a circular process don't they because this is something Channel 4 were definitely looking at six, seven, eight years ago and decided at that point not, Andy not to do it Yeah, Sam what do you think if you were Delaney Productions or I don't know what Big Sam Big Sam Media? Yeah, I like the sound of that. I mean, yeah, I could get Big Sam Allardyce involved, a man very close to the hearts of Steve and I, and uh, maybe we could do that as a trio, Steve. I don't know if you're... We into... always manage to get West Ham into we the do, podcast yeah. every that's, time. That's yeah. part of the deal when you book us two together. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it would seem a bit iffy. I'm just interested to know, you know, from Steve's perspective, really. I mean, is it is it a reflection on the fact they don't think they're getting um, the right sort of people to work, they're not getting the right sort of ideas through and without enough other people investing in, in kind of young talent. I think we would better do it ourselves. If not, the well's running dry here. I mean, ultimately, there's plenty of broadcasters. You know, you look at some of the big American broadcasters, pl- plenty of broadcasters who've invested in mm. production companies. So, I, I, you know, I can't see that that much of a big issue. I mean, it seems if they want to go down a strategic line where, where it's more smaller companies they're investing in, fine. Okay, next up, we're going to turn our attention to print. And The Sun, where uh, online traffic, uh, by all accounts this week, has plunged by 62% since they put out their paywalls. Uh, Sam, what did you make of this? Because uh, they've um, got the football rights, of course, which uh, mm. they, they, they're using to sort of brand some plus in the hope that people will subscribe. But um, I guess it's only to be expected that once the, the paywalls go up, your traffic's going to tumble off a cliff. Yeah, I mean, it takes time, these things, doesn't it? I mean... I subscribe to the Times, but I've only done so over the last sort of four or five months, and it's been going for quite a few years now, hasn't it? I think part of the reason was that they got the football, which is absolutely tremendous. You're reading the review of the game, and what appears to be just the still above the story actually is the highlights. It means that you never actually have to watch Match of the Day ever again. How liberating is that? <laughs> I haven't looked much at Sunline. I haven't subscribed to it yet. But it takes time. It takes time for people to get their head around the notion of it. Perhaps the average Sun website user won't be even, you know, as literate with the with the fact that this has happened, you know. Whereas the Times readers might have known it was coming. You just log on one day. Hang on a minute. I can't access this website I used to look at every day. could take a very long time. But they seem to be invested in fantastic content. And uh, so I would imagine, and they've just announced like, lo- you know, lo- they're hiring loads of people, aren't they? They've spent uh, millions of pounds on hiring new people. They're pretty much the only show in town in terms of new jobs and new talent and stuff like that. So I'm sure they'll get there. Yeah, well, you, you talked about new, new investment there, Sam, and the, the Sun on Sundays hired, uh, well, who have they hired from the people? This is the person Deputy picture the... editor who was responsible for the people's improbable scoop uh, surrounding Charles Saatchi and Nigella Lawson. Improbable because the people you don't usually expect to get a good scoop. Improbable also because, you know, it's, it's about kind of a chef and an, and an ad man turned art dealer. It, it's, not, it's not the natural kind of constituency for big Sunday tabloid scandals, but there you go. Anyway, it's Deputy Picture Editor, so good luck to them. Uh, it's been billed as a really big signing, but of course, you know... I'll have the whole picture editing community kind of banging on my door for saying this. But at the end of the day, photographer rings you up, said, got these pictures, do you fancy them? And you go, how much? And they go, this much. And then you go to your editor and go, do you want to pay this much? I reckon it's worth it. The editor goes, all right, and that's it. There's your scoop. 
And then, you haven't you haven't hidden in the dustbin for the night, is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. Right, time now for a Media Monkey quiz. Uh, no, question number one. Sky formally unveiled its biggest ever drama slate this week. But can you name one of the shows? Yes, uh, an, uh, an English adaptation of The Bridge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's it, I don't know. That would do, detail. yeah, The Tunnel. Okay. <laughs> no, seriously. It. Yeah, The Tunnel. They set, called it The Tunnel? Yeah, it's set in the Channel Tunnel. Oh, wow. <laughs> Not the whole thing. Uh, question, number, question number two starts mid-October. Uh, Sam's already got it stuck in his Sky Plus. Uh, question number two, other PVRs are available. Which theatre critic was given her final curtain call this oh. week? I know this one, uh, Libby Purvis. Libby Purvis, by the Times, yeah. So it's one all. Oh, this is, this is fantastic. This Nailed is by like the Champions League. Right, question number three. Uh, apologies for the grammar if this is wrong. Who said this of whom? They are lions led by donkeys who have no clue about how to make a national newspaper work in the 21st century. Tony Parsons, uh, oh. columnist for The Sun, formerly of The Mirror, and still columnist for Viz. Uh, you should really keep an eye out for that. And uh, uh, he was saying it about his former employers at the Mirror. That is the last-minute winner from Sandra Lane, which makes it 2-1. That really uh, was week. end-to-end stuff, wasn't it? That, uh, it was, wasn't it? It was great. Yeah. I think that could be a format. Yeah. Uh, is that what you're making for Channel 4, Steve? <laughs> end-to-end stuff. <laughs> Take that as a no. Right, my thanks this week, as ever, to Mr. Sam Delaney and Steve Ackerman. So here's a familiar voice. Nope, not mine, but it's a David Attenborough who I met recently to talk about his new BBC Two series, Rise of Animals, Triumph of the Vertebrates. We talked about that and much else besides. But first off, let's hear a clip from the show and hear from the man himself. That's very beautiful. You can see it's got striations on it. When an animal dies in the sea, normally bacteria destroy the soft parts very quickly. So that all that we can find afterwards are the hard parts, bone or shell. Why that didn't happen here in this particular part of this particular sea is something of a mystery. It may be something to do with the lack of oxygen. But whatever it was, it has given us a privileged view into one of the most exciting chapters in the whole history of life. Uh, I, I made two programmes called uh, First Life uh, a year or so ago, a couple of years ago, which was about the uh, evolution of animals without backbones, starting with snails and worms and that sort of thing and ending up with trilobites. But what we didn't touch was the evolution of animals with backbones, which was eventually, of course, includes us. Uh, and it goes from uh, the first creatures, little fish-like creatures, through amphibians and reptiles, dinosaurs, birds, and then mammals and ourselves. Of course, the outlines of that story have been known for a very long time um, by geologists and paleontologists working in Western Europe, including this country. But recently, China has become one of the great places where the gaps in the record that we knew, that we found uh, when we put the first outlines together, the gaps could be filled by examples which are found in China. So this is the story of the development, the evolution of backbone animals. And as well as filming in China for the first time, I think you, there's lots of CGI involved in, in this series, too, which, which feels like a bit of a first. You've done 3D programmes, of course, before, but this is another departure. One of the great excitements about uh, using uh, CGI uh, is that it can bring fossils to life in a way which you've never seen before. Uh, and the, in, the important thing, as I was concerned, was that we shouldn't kind of delude people. I mean, we should make it absolutely clear which is CGI and which is not. 
Um, and one of the ways of doing that is that you, you, you get bones, you find bones on the slab of rock, and you can get the, with CGI, get the bones to come out of the rock and assemble themselves together into a complete skeleton. And then you can get the skeleton to walk about without having any fur or muscles on it, as it were, in CGI. So everybody knows what it is. It's an electronic... Uh, sophisticated uh, technique but there it is it's tr it's true in the in the real sense in that you're looking at a real skeleton i mean uh, um, and you can see how it moves inside which is very interesting what's next is there another big landmark series coming up for the bbc um, not a big landmark series uh well it depends uh, these days as you as you said the bbc called two parts a series which isn't what i call a series i used to call a 13 one-hour programs that was a series a real series but two parts is not on the other hand we're doing uh, a 3d uh, special for christmas about the natural history museum in which animals come to life and we're also doing a, um, another 3D, which is a series, and as much as there are two programmes, um, and that is about the evolution of flight, uh, starting with insects and going all the way through. So uh, yes, my hands are quite full. And those 3D projects are for Sky, I presume? For Sky, well, uh, yes. Uh, Sky, of course, is the only network which has, television, has 3D capability. Were you sad that the BBC has, has, has withdrawn from 3D? Yes, very much so. I was going to make... I'm going to say something about expenditure and so on, but um, anyway, uh, you shouldn't be throwing your money around too much, and, and, and uh, maybe the BBC has decided that it can't afford to go on experimenting in, in 3D, and they'll wait and see, which is their prerogative. Um, but BBC used to be at the cutting edge, you know, of, of technical development, and I'm sorry they've retreated from this one. Um, I wanted to ask you just on a wider point about the BBC. There's You'll have seen the, you know, the controversy about sort of payoffs and, and Lord Patton and Mark Thompson are up before MPs. What, what, what have you made of that? It feels like one part of the BBC is at war with, a, with another part, an older part at the moment. Well, I, I ended up as director of programmes uh, for television, and I think my salary was 15000 a year. Which says it all, perhaps. Maybe. What have you thought about the scale of pay and the, and the level of payoffs and what everyone has discovered in the last few months about what's been happening over the it's, last several years? It doesn't require me to say that uh, uh, that's a, bit, a huge embarrassment that the salaries of that size are being paid. Public service organisation. And as a result, do you worry more about the future of the BBC because of the, dam the damage this does? Very much so. Uh, the BBC is, in my view, one of the most uh, important strands in the cultural life of this country by quite a long way. It has flourished for uh, uh, since the 20s and has contributed hugely to the cultural life of this country and it's going through a bad patch. I just hope that it will emerge from the bad patch with the standards which made it great still there. And with the charter renewal up for negotiation now and the licence fee came out for renewal in, in three or four years' time, it's, it's, a, it's a potentially dangerous time. There are plenty of people who, with interests which conflict with those of the BBC, and there are plenty of, um, of strands in, in society who would be glad to see the BBC diminished. Ideally, they would like the BBC to be exterminated, but they realise that that would never happen or should not happen. But, so, but what could happen is that it is diminished or it is so starved um, of, of money that it um, uh, has to abandon many of its public service responsibilities. And if it did that, uh, then it would be no longer the BBC and it would be a catastrophe for the country. And there might not be a licence fee. New, te new technology means it, it could go subscription, but potentially. What would you see of the danger of no longer having a, a universal fee paid by everyone? 
the, the television world has changed beyond recognition. When I joined it, it was a monopoly, and, the, and things were perfectly clear. Things are now extremely complicated, uh, with, with programmes and programme material coming in from all sorts of quarters and finance in all kinds of ways, and none. And so the BBC is going to have to be very clear-headed about what its future is and what the responsibilities public service uh, requires. Producing public service stuff, which doesn't necessarily make a lot of money, uh, is dependent upon the, on the licence fee. There's no other way of being found of doing it. Um, you can, if you put it in for taxes, on your tax, you are putting yourself under the thumb uh, of the government, and which changes, as we know, fairly regularly. Uh, and the continuity of, of standards which the BBC once held uh, will be imperiled if that happens. And do you think, would it help the BBC if it opened it up to opened itself up to more uh, regulation to a body like Ofcom, or, or, or should it open it up so open itself to, to more inspection to, to safeguard its future? It has it has all kinds of, uh, of regulation and has had in the past uh, by governments uh, by governors uh, the board of governors who um, looked after the BBC's public interest and did so. There were people of experience and public service and they did very well by the, by the country. And that has been dismantled and chased by an altar. It doesn't appear to have worked very well so far, as far as we can see, uh, but something has to take its place and some the BBC can't be, uh, the executive can't be allowed to go without any checks and balances. That's, that's perfectly proper. But uh, the, the, the check and balance that we've got at the moment seems to have out of kilter. Well, back to yourself, uh, Sir David, or perhaps to your successor. You, you appear to anoint Brian Cox as, 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 as your, your next. <laughs> was that rather overplayed? Or, uh, oh, no, no. It's not going to happen I mean, any time soon, of course. I think it's a remarkable broadcast. The, uh, what happened was that I was asked at a, a, a presentation off the cuff and because he had just he had just spoken very in very complimentary terms to me, and I was asked to follow him, and and uh, and I said that, and uh, there we are. But I think Brown would be surprised if I said that he was supposed to be making programmes about dicky birds. Right, his skills perhaps are, uh, is it, plenty of skills, but they lie elsewhere. Yeah, well, I mean, he, yes, his last programme, of course, did quite a lot of natural history involved in it, and he is a scientist. And I, he's a scientist much greater, more of a scientist than I am. We're actually working in rather different fields of science. And it's not Bjork, I know, or Bjork, perhaps, but you, <laughs> but you have been working with her. Tell us how that came about. Well, she simply asked me to talk about music in the animal kingdom, and we had some very nice, a couple of nice lunches in which we were talking about uh, the function of sound and song in the animal world, um, and she asked me to contribute to her new project, which I was happy to do. Any more on the horizon, or anyone else? No, no. Damon Alburn must have no, been no. then, sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody else. And just finally, is there one project, if you could do anything at all, that you, that's, that, you, that you still want to do? Maybe not next, but you know, if you, if you could do anything with any budget. I, uh, with any budget, that's very <laughs> Maybe not any budget. No, I'm, I'm, I seldom look forward to something right over there. It's not beyond the horizon. I've got something in front of me, and that's what occupied me. And I've got some very nice things going on. The evolution of flight we're looking at into 3D programmes, which will be, which will be fun. Okay, so David, thank you very much. Pleasure. Sir David Attenborough there and his new BBC Two series, Rise of Animals, Triumph of the Vertebrates, begins on the 20th of September. That's this Friday, or last Friday, depending on when you hear this, and concludes on the 27th. 
It's that time of the podcast when we talk TV with The Guardian's TV and radio editor, Rebecca Nicholson. Rebecca, how are you? I'm well. How Almost, are you? Uh, I'm below par. But I can see you've got a Twix and a coffee. Yeah, which is <laughs> not <laughs> that, only a coffee. That's never a good sign. <laughs> a machine coffee, which is the, the beverage equivalent of a, a stem cell burger, I think. I think if so. that joke came out. Yeah. Call it a joke. It's a Ginster's pasty <laughs> in a coffee cup. It is, yes. So however bad I am now, I'm going to be worse in about 20 minutes. <laughs> so, but you're coming across a little bit, uh, Sarah Lund. Well, I got overexcited about the cold weather and now, unfortunately, I'm sweltering in a jumper that could be described as Christmassy. <laughs> it could be. It could be. Christmas comes early. On media talk. <laughs> I would like a julep toaster, please. Right, so coming up this week, uh, two shows, frankly, I've never heard of uh, and one show I very much have. But yes. let's, let's keep that suspense building. L- let's talk about Fabulous Fashionistas. Uh, a documentary on Channel 4 last night by Sue Bourne, who has made a few cutting edges, and she made the really brilliant Mum and Me for BBC Two, which is about um, she kind of followed her mother who has Alzheimer's. So this was she's a really great documentary maker. She's really kind of sensitive and smart, and you know you hear her behind the camera asking questions, but good questions, and she's really great. So I was so quite excited about this anyway. Fab- Fabulous fa- fashionista. It's deeper than it sounds. It's a rubbish name, and it's a very Channel Four thing, I think, to stick a stupid name on a program that isn't really about that at all. Um, so this is about women who have uh, six women, average age of 80. One of them is Baroness Trumpington, who famously flicked the Vs in the House of Lords recently. And essentially it's about the fact that they like to dress glamorously and they present themselves well, but really it's about their approach to life and how everything about it sounds trite. So if I say the way they've dealt with the things life has thrown at them. But it's really beautiful. And I, I had several cries at different points in the episode and I found myself grinning for most of it as well which is really kind of it's a really nice feeling when you're watching something and you don't realize that you're sitting there with a stupid smile plastered on your face but it's that kind of show all of these women were wonderful it was great I I wonder if there's a full series to be made out of it I suspect that a lot of the magic is that it was a one-off but I do know what you're talking about now I didn't associate it with the title which reflects what you said because it's a stupid title I remember it's sort of old uh, if I can put it like this it's sort of old people having fun old people not getting old yeah basically that's that's what it is inspiration to us all a real inspiration and in such an unpatronising I think it could have been so easy to make a patronising programme out of this and you know stick some plinky plonky music in the background and ooh look at the funny old ladies but it's not like that at all it's just lovely and uh, all credit to Sue Bourne it's a really fantastic documentary and some of them dressing very young well, I, yeah. Or should I not? Am I am I falling no, into the I trap there? Okay, say that. The one, the one I think you're thinking of, who, who does? She says I'll, I'll shop at Topshop, and but she looks amazing. And again, not in a. There's no kind of patronising element to that at all. She looks incredible. She works it. She she really she really works it. I was in Top Man recently. Got asked to leave. <laughs> Too old. Move on. Next up. Next up. Well, I, but it could become a series because you know, Big Fat Gypsy Wedding and I The Undateables are both one-offs. And which I was serious, thinking so. again of Fried Chicken Shot, which was. A cutting edge one-off yeah. and then became a series but again I think maybe that lost some of its magic this time around next up next up this is a slight curveball but Valentine Warner eats Scandinavia on channel <laughs> 4 it's on no it's on good food it's on good, good food. food media talk debut media talk debut welcome good, good food. food it's on every night this week I've series linked it and it's tell just us the title again Valentine. Valentine Warner eats Scandinavia and it's just this kind of lovely I, I'm in a very good mood with telly this week there's been a lot of really nice things and he just sort of potters around various Scandinavian countries eating food and cooking food and I'm a huge fan of the countries of Scandinavia in fact I went on holiday to three of them this summer 
Well, that's dedication. That is dedication. It's not necessarily somewhere you go for your summer holidays, but actually it was very nice. And yeah, he just cooks cooks Scandinavian food. So we had open sandwiches on Monday. Open sandwiches. Open sandwiches. That's like that's just like that's like a sandwich with one slice of bread, isn't it? Well, yeah, rye bread, and then right. but it's, there's an art. If you'd watched okay. it, you would have seen. It's actually it's an art form. And then uh, last night he turned some little mini crabs into a nice pasta sauce. Just I mean, right. I bet the crabs were nothing, grateful. <laughs> well, it was a bit gruesome. Kind of boiled them and then mashed them. Anyway. Oh, yeah. um, there's nothing particularly challenging about this, but for fans of Scandinavia, as you can see by my jumper, I am a fan of the of the Scandi world. There's even a killing themed dinner, which a he, killing themed he dinner. He had to eat. This. Began with six people, ended with four. <laughs> Someone didn't make it out of. He had to eat his food with latex pathologist gloves on, which I can imagine tasted rank. But um, yeah, lovely right. show. I would sounds try lovely. It. <laughs> but if you if you like looking at beautiful scenery and thinking about eating seafood which both appealed to me then I would I would catch up on it it's really nice and last question who the heck's Valentine Warner anyway he's my favourite TV chef is he he's, he's a tall posh sort of amiable man well yeah like yours truly <laughs> next up Next up, and uh, for fans of Breaking Bad, we're about to speak about Breaking Bad. So if you haven't watched this week's episode, uh, which wasn't on any particular time because it's on a video on demand service. But if you've not seen it uh, and you want to see it and you don't want to know what happens, what I'm trying to say is spoiler alert. Massive spoiler alert. Right, go. Although I do feel like people are watching it at a vaguely similar time. I've noticed people are watching it on Monday nights when they get in from work, which is quite nice. I've never really seen that with on-demand stuff before where there seems to have been a sort of vaguely uh, agreed on time to watch it so and I DIY think and linear TV well I think so because people don't want to be spoiled so everyone is what, saying okay we're going to watch it on Monday night and then it feels like on Twitter for example like that you're allowed to talk about it after Monday night even though some people get annoyed it was um, a very good episode wasn't it wasn't it just I, w- I have to watch this at 9am at my desk on Monday mornings um, because we get the series blog uh, a couple of hours after that so I need to know what's happening and I, ca- I can't keep starting my week with this level of trauma because it's just I, I've, I've found myself very traumatised by this week there were several moments but um, yes one in particular Oof. poor Hank poor Hank we knew it was coming, really. But he went out with pride, didn't he? He, told he him went to out go. with pride. Yeah. And I'm pleased that that happened. I'm, I'm glad. But I think from the phone call to Marie the week before, we knew that was it. He was so happy. You're not allowed to do that in Breaking Bad. And the most common. awful, plenty of, no shortage of violence, but the, the knife fight was, you know, that was real kind of knuckle in mouth. Yeah, oh my wasn't God. it? I it thought, was so I thought close. Hank Jr. was going was to buy it. Oh, because we're so used to these kind of, like even the desert gunfight, it's very cinematic and it's, big and it feels kind of like movie theatre stuff and that was so domestic and so messy and badly done and everything you know the knife was everywhere and it was all kind of it was just horrible yeah I didn't know who was going to get it but it did feel like somebody would the phone call we should talk about the phone call the phone call yeah how, how did you interpret that well that was him trying to put uh, put Sky in the clear wasn't it you I know, think so to, I think it was con the police thing you know, she had nothing to do with it there's a good piece about it in the New Yorker uh, oh. on the New Yorker website discussing that in great detail but um, and was he crying because you know he, he was having to lie to her and feeling bad about it or was he crying because he suddenly became self-aware and that what he was describing really was the truth well know? that's it I think the argument yes. that they made is that he was both Heisenberg and Walt in that moment and Heisenberg was allowing him to be more Walt and it was very kind of confusing and we've had that flash forward didn't we a few episodes ago where he was kind of loading loads of guns and ammunition into the boot of his car yeah. and he's got a full head of hair 
So I wonder if Uncle Jack is going to... Some kind of retribution coming up. Yeah, I don't or, know. or will he rescue Jesse? What's going to... Yeah, poor Jesse. Poor Jesse. Oh, the cut on his nose looks especially oh, sore. <laughs> didn't it? Didn't it just? And lovely symmetry as well to when Hank beat the other side of his face. Possibly the other side of his face. Maybe it was the same side. I don't know. But he looked the same after Hank had... You can never been. take on the meth dealers. Always going to be a slave to the drug. Always going to be a slave to the... As Brian Ferry did. did Brian, no, he was slave to love, wasn't he? And love is the drug. <laughs> yeah. So he was slave to the drug. <laughs> uh, anyway. I'd, like, I'd like a Roxy Music Breaking Bad mashup. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the challenge, Media Talk listeners. <laughs> so the Venn diagram that overlaps Media Talk listeners and people who are very, very good at doing that sort of thing on YouTube. Send us your entries. <laughs> it's not a competition, but you may, if you do really good, when you come on next week, right? <laughs> Possibly. Rebecca Nicholson. Thank you very much. Thank you. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life online. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag and drop tools, and 24-7 support. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today with no credit card required. And as a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 20% off in September by using the offer code GUARDIAN. Squarespace. Everything you need to create an exceptional website. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to all our guests, Steve Ackerman, Sam Delaney, Rebecca Nicholson, and of course to Sir David Attenborough. You can leave your comments on this week's show on our Facebook wall or our blog, or you can tweet me at the ever-popular John Plunkett 149 Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. He's on Twitter too. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.